Greetings to you in the name of our risen and ascended Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm Pastor Glenn Thomas, Senior Pastor at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri, and I'm delighted that you can join us for Bible study. Whether you're joining us here in the St. Louis area on KFUO AM 850 radio or worldwide on KFUO.org, once again, welcome. As is our usual custom, we will be looking at the scripture readings, the three scripture readings assigned not for this Sunday, August 16, but for the following Sunday, next Sunday, Sunday, August 23. Let's begin with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your rich mercy and blessings to us. We thank you especially for the blessing of forgiveness and eternal life in your presence by your grace through faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you also for your word, your revealed knowledge to us, telling us of your great love for us and all that you have and continue to do for us. We pray your Holy Spirit's guidance and blessing as we continue in our study of your word that we might grow in our knowledge of that word, but especially also learn more about our relationship with you, which will last for an eternity. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to be looking, as I mentioned, at uh, the three scripture lessons assigned for Sunday, August 23. So first we'll be looking at Isaiah 51, verses 1 through 6. Second, we'll be looking at Romans chapter 11, verse 33 through 12, verse 8. And then we'll be looking at Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. First of all, then, Isaiah 51, verses 1 through 6. Just a little background on this. This section in Isaiah 51 through really 55 um, speaks of what we might call a new exodus or a new rescue that uh, God will be accomplishing for his people. Uh, ultimately, it is accomplished through the suffering servant who will come, none other than Jesus Christ himself. His people, God's people, would be reading these words as they are in captivity. Uh, they would be uh, hearing these words, I should probably say, as they are in captivity in Babylon. Just to review that God uh, raised up the Babylonian nation to bring judgment upon his people uh, for primarily their idolatry, uh, their, their lack of faithfulness to him, and a whole host of other issues that accompanied that idolatry, so that in 586 B.C., uh, Jerusalem itself and the temple were completely destroyed. There had been attacks, of course, prior to that. There had been a prior uh, deportation, a uh, big, large deportation that had taken place. But typically, 586 is the date that we use B.C. to uh, say that uh, it was all over, uh, that uh, the conquering had been completed. And many of the brightest and best, even before that, but certainly during that as well, uh, were carted off to Babylon. Uh, and there, uh, throughout that uh, great uh, empire, great size-wise and, and power-wise, uh, they were uh, saddled, scattered and were held captive there. Um, the verses right before our text talk about... Um, uh, 
the exiles in Babylon as, as it being in darkness and having what we might call manufactured light or uh, idols uh, there that uh, they could be worshiping. Um, the words of our lesson here now describe a deliverance that is near and sure. Now, historically speaking, of course, we know that um, I mentioned 586 was the time when the Babylonians uh, finished, you might say, the, the conquering work. Um, in 539, then, God raises up Cyrus, uh, the leader of the Persians, to uh, uh, rule over. They, they defeated the Babylonians, I should say, in 539. 538, then, Cyrus, the leader of the Persians, uh, issues the Edict of Cyrus, and there is a deliverance, a rescue that God accomplishes there through his uh, appointed leader of the Persians, Cyrus. Uh, Cyrus even mentioned uh, by name uh, in prophecy in the book of Jeremiah, for example, and the people of God then, the Edict of Cyrus allowed for God's people uh, to worship freely and also to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and rebuild the city. And uh, we won't, can't rehearse all the history here, but just to say that historically there was that deliverance that God provided. However, as I indicated earlier, there is another um, great deliverance or rescue that was still yet to come, of course, and that is through Jesus Christ, the suffering servant who would come. And we would even say today that uh, the ultimate fulfillment uh, is going to be when that suffering servant, no longer suffering but triumphant, returns and raises our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. Uh, when uh, creation is made new once again, a new heaven and a new earth, when sin and death are done away with, all of that ultimately is the deliverance that will come. So I guess you might say there are different levels of uh, fulfillment, we might say, uh, when it comes to what we're going to be reading here in, I in Isaiah 51, 1 through 6. So with that as context, uh, let's begin with verse 1 of Isaiah 51. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. I notice that's a very different kind of activity uh, than they were doing prior to their captivity, uh, prior to their judgment and, and Babylon uh, coming upon them in judgment. Uh, they are now seeking uh, the Lord and uh, versus idols. And, and he goes on to say, Look to the rock from which you were hewn, and to the quarry from which you were dug. So we have this imagery of the people being a stone that was hewn and dug from a quarry. Um, we remember, so it's kind of a looking backward here, notice right now. We're looking back to the past, uh, sort of a remember that from which you came. Uh, and notice there, they did not create themselves. God created them. That's a passive that is used here, a passive form. Uh, the, the, look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. And, of course, we know it is God who came and chose his people, not because of anything in them, not because they were a great, powerful nature, nation, rather, uh, not because they were righteous in and of themselves, just the opposite in both cases. It is God in his grace 
that comes and chooses his people, uh, makes covenant with them, and promises, promises them incredible things. So it's uh, looking backward. Now verse 2, look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who bore you. So we're going back uh, to the, the roots, the covenantal roots, you might say, uh, with Abraham. And of course, Abraham, uh, the first one in Scripture, who was uh, openly declared to be righteous because of faith, because he believed God. Uh, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him or counted to him as righteousness. And, of course, we don't have the time to rehearse the entire story with Abraham and Sarah both being uh, very elderly uh, and, and being childless, and yet God promising in Genesis 12, Genesis 17, and so on, to make of Abraham a a great nation and his descendants, and um, to make them more numerous than the stars in the sky and more numerous than the sand on the shore of the sea. And, of course, Abraham is 75 when God first comes, and Sarah is 65 and makes that promise, and it goes on and on and on until Abraham finally at the age of 100, and Sarah at the age of 90, give birth to the promised child, Isaac, the child of promise. And uh, so look back, God is saying to his people, even as they are captive, look back to your roots. Look back to the rock from which you were hewn. Um, Some commentators have said that uh, maybe the analogy to a rock uh, is an appropriate one because, as it says in Hebrews eleven twelve, Abraham was as good as dead uh, when when God made this uh, promise, uh, and certainly when, by the time that the promise actually was fulfilled and granted. So, yet again, as he says here, going on in verse two, for he, Abraham, was but one when I called him that I might bless him and multiply him. And again, we just talked about that promise of multiplying and making a great nation and the seemingly contradictory uh, fact that he had no heir and looked for all human intents and purposes as though he was going to have no heir. But God is the one who does exactly what he says. And the fact that Abraham and Sarah were so old when the promise was finally fulfilled even points to God in a much stronger way as the one who does what he promises. He's the one who brings it about. It wasn't anything Abraham and Sarah did. All right, let's go on looking ahead now. So we've had a look backward at the faithful God who does what he promises, a look back to their roots, so to speak. Now starting in verse 3, we're not looking back anymore, but we're looking forward. And the ultimate, let's start here, verse 3, For the Lord comforts Zion, he comforts all her waste places. So the people in captivity now are being comforted by God. And, of course, again, we know that the ultimate comfort comes through the servant who will come, the suffering servant who will come, and who will bring eternal comfort through sins forgiven, and a right relationship restored with God once again. Uh, Notice how the 
uh, even creation is seen as being transformed here, starting in this part of verse 3. And he, this person coming, makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. So even, again, creation is being seen here as transformed. And again, that is ultimately fulfilled, as we talked about, on the last day when uh, there is a new restored creation, if you will, and all the results of sin permeating this creation are done away with. Uh, so not only is there a, a uh, participation by people, but there is a participation by all of creation and throughout all of creation on that great day. Uh, then a natural result here joy and gladness will be found in her, in that, in that creation, we might say. So there will be great rejoicing on that day, thanksgiving, and the voice of song. You can almost feel the intensity of, of the great uh, praise and thanksgiving and joy that, that takes place. Then verse 4, God says, Give attention to me, my people, and give ear to me, my nation. So he's calling their attention. This, this is now, notice, a present. Uh, we're not talking about the past or the future, but the present. Give attention to me, my people, and give ear to me, my nation. And so as they are in captivity, he is, he is saying to them, Listen to me, for a law will go out from me, and I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. Now notice it's very important here. It's not just Israel. It's not just God's people. But we have, I will set my justice for a light to the peoples, or to the nations, we could say. And again, it harkens back to the servant uh, is not just for Israel. It's not just for the, the physical descendants of Abraham, but is for all people, the servant who will come. Uh, and then uh, verse 5, My righteousness draws near. My salvation has gone out. So in the one sense, we, we could say that righteousness and salvation are for all, because we've talked about um, going out to the peoples. His justice is a light to the peoples. And then in one sense, you know, God, as I said, will raise up Cyrus and bring salvation or bring deliverance as Cyrus defeats Babylon. And, um, but there is, again, that ultimate fulfillment in the suffering servant, fulfilled in, in its total when he goes to the cross and does away with uh, sin, death, and de the devil and, and defeats them uh, resoundingly there. But again, ultimately fulfilled on that great day when we will all experience uh, the, the salvation, the fulfillment, we might say, uh, the full fruition of the salvation. Next, in my arms will judge the peoples. Again, the, he will uh, lead the peoples. The coastlands, now anytime we see coastlands, it's those who are far away, again, the nations. And for my arm, they wait. Notice again the emphasis, uh, much, much broader than merely uh, Israel or um, the descendants of Jacob, the descendants of Abraham. Then verse 6, 
Lift up your eyes to the heavens, almost like a look confidently with eyes of faith up into the heavens, and look at the earth beneath. So, again, uh, full cosmic uh, view. For the heavens vanish like smoke, the earth will wear out like a garment, and they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will never be dismayed. Well, you get a, uh, you know, a, a total uh, turnaround from what was spoken by God in his original creation when he pronounced, uh, especially after the, the sixth day, that it was very good. Now, of course, it is permeated with sin, and death will be made, um, sin and death will be made uh, new, a new heaven and a new earth. Sin and death will be done away with, I should say. And notice there the, the vivid imagery, the heavens vanish like smoke, earth wears out like a garment, um, and they who dwell in it will die in like manner. Now, we don't usually speak here of, of the end uh, day, the, the last day, as being one of annihilation, but rather one of recreation uh, and restoration. So this is a way of looking at how totally and completely... Um, God's creation will be transformed. Uh, if you want to, you can look at Isaiah 65, verse 17, uh, to see uh, this language of a new heaven and a new earth. Um, and, of course, it also brings up images of Revelation 7, Revelation 21, where we see those who are righteous standing before the throne of God, people from every language and nation and tribe and people. You know, again, this this uh, universal aspect to God's salvation. We see them there standing before the throne of God in, in robes that have been washed and made white in the, in the blood of the Lamb, and they are there uh, rejoicing and praising God, just as we heard in previous verses of the great rejoicing uh, and joy that takes place on that day. So, this, uh, first of all, then, talks, as I say, about a deliverance for God's people. Uh, first, there will be a physical um, uh, deliverance uh, that God will bring about through Cyrus. There will be yet an even much greater deliverance that will take place when the suffering servant comes and gives his life as a ransom for many, and ultimately, then, the full fruition of that release, of that uh, uh, being set free happens on the last day when Christ returns in all power and in all glory. All right, let's go on then now to our epistle lesson for next weekend. And this is Romans chapter 11, verse 33 through 12, verse 8. And uh, just a few words here, first of all, to start off. Um, we're going to be talking... The, the sections here in 11, 33 through 36, uh, really kind of set up in some ways what is going to be following. And um, where we'll see in chapter 12, Paul says, therefore, in other words, he references everything that's come before and now starts talking about the implications of living with uh, having, having received the grace and the mercy of God. And living as those who are 
justified or uh, made righteous, made uh, accounted righteous in the sight of God. So these verses 33 through 36 are important in that they do lay a foundation for what's going to follow. Let's start with verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Now there's one way of looking at this that would talk about simply how you know God's ways are uh, he, he is so much more intelligent, uh, he has so much more knowledge, he's omniscient, he knows all things. We, on the other hand, are so uh, lack so much knowledge and uh, don't know a thimbleful uh, compared to him. And that is certainly true. I'm not, I'm not denying that. But these, unsearchable his ways, uh, his wisdom, his knowledge, also deals with how unsearchable are his ways when it comes to his grace and his mercy. That they go beyond anything that we could possibly understand or comprehend as mere human beings, who especially sinful human beings. So the depth of the riches, think of his, his kindness to undeserving sinners, the rich blessings that he grants, including forgiveness and eternal life, to undeserved sinners. Wisdom, not only in creation, but also in revelation and in redemption. His wisdom, again, uh, goes beyond anything we could imagine. His knowledge, but here knowledge is not just facts, it's not just information, but it's relationally knowing also his creation, including us. Now here's the verse, here's the portion. How unsearchable are his judgments, his, his justice, which for us equals forgiveness, doesn't it? And how inscrutable are his ways. So how unfathomable are his judgments, which include forgiveness, and how, uh, how incomprehensible are his ways, which again include forgiveness and mercy. So we, you know, to summarize here, we cannot fathom the depth of his judgments or his ways um, that, that he would, for undeserved sinners, allow his son to come and give up his life, take the punishment that should be ours, and then turn around and declare us righteous as a re result. So again, the most visible uh, and, and most um, displayed uh, unsearchableness to us is exactly what he did for us in Christ Jesus. Um, and, and the grace that we cannot fathom the depths of. And just think also of the inclusion of all people, including sinful Gentiles. Can't fathom it. Now, verse 34, For who has known the mind of the Lord? Well, that's obviously a rhetorical question. No one. Uh, I guess we'd say except Christ. We have to be uh, uh, careful there. No one except Christ. And, or who has been his counselor? Again, a rhetorical question. There are three rhetorical questions here. Uh, notice how who has been his counselor? No. Uh, everything flows from God to us. He does not depend on any initiative from us or anything from us. We have nothing to give. We have nothing to offer. Uh, it all flows from God to us. 
Verse 35, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? And, of course, again, a rhetorical question, and the answer is no one. Uh, He cannot be repaid. How in the world could we repay God for all of his loving kindness and blessings to us? Uh, it, It doesn't even come close. There's nothing, again, we can offer. Verse 36 uh, sort of summarizes, For from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be glory forever. So for from him, we think of from him, the creator and the sustainer of all of creation, uh, that we live and move and have our being through him. Uh, And then through him, we think of that through him come all good things, Uh, in this world, the best of which his own son, and to him, again, the direction again to which all things flow are all things. And as Paul concludes here, to him be the glory forever. Amen. So, these mercies of God, this unsearchable uh, judgments uh, and Uh, which include grace and forgiveness and mercy. Uh, This all forms the backdrop now for what is going to start in chapter 12, verse 1, uh, where Paul is now going to appeal uh, for, uh, actually, chapters 12 through 16, actually, uh, through, through the conclusion. Paul will be, again, talking about the implications of our being on the receiving end of this great love and mercy of God. So he says here in verse 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Well, let's go back. He is appealing. Notice he's not ordering. He is appealing here. And notice again the word therefore, uh, hearkening back to what he has just completed talking about, the, the wonderful mercy and grace of God and all of his blessings. It's therefore, because of all that, brothers, his talking here obviously to brothers and of course sisters in Christ, by the mercies of God, you know, what we've just spoken of, what we've just talked about and considered, now what do you do? Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And a living, first of all, let's go back to your bodies. We're talking here, obviously, about the whole person and life. Not just a part, but all of us uh, is to be presented before God. You know, this uh, brings to mind, uh, I think, a great tendency that we have, I think especially in the United States, um, to think of God and our relationship with him through Christ as a part of our life, a part of our being. And we have other parts or other compartments, we might say, in our life. So we have our Christian compartment and we have our work compartment, we might have our school compartment, we have our family compartment, and, you know, this, this whole notion is a false one, and actually a dangerous one. We are uh, asked here, therefore, to present our bodies, our whole life, our whole person, 
as, and it sounds like a contradiction here, a living sacrifice. It sounds like an oxymoron, and, and I guess it is, actually. A sacrifice, of course, our, our minds are originally drawn to all the sacrifices uh, done by the priests uh, throughout the Old Testament, first of all, uh, at the temple, and certainly through the time of Christ, where animals were offered in sacrifice, their blood shed, in some cases burned, uh, burnt offerings uh, also. And so uh, that's what comes to mind, I think, for most of us when we think of a sacrifice. But no, it is a living sacrifice, a living, breathing sacrifice. Each and every day, our entire lives are offered to God, not as a way of gaining his mercy and grace, but as Paul has been hammering home here, as a result of our already having been on the receiving end of God's mercy and grace. So it's a living sacrifice, a way of thinking about every day of your life you are involved in, uh, a, or your identity is, living out a living sacrifice. Now he says holy. Well, something holy, I think many times, again, our first inclination is to think of something as holy as being pure, uh, righteous, blameless, and that's true. It is also something, though, that is set apart for God's use. And this is a great way of thinking about ourselves. As we are people who are holy, and again, many people use that term pejoratively, and, and uh, oh, you're just holier than thou, or something along those lines. But no, it has a, a wonderful aspect of being set apart for God's use. And uh, each day, we can contemplate how we are being used by God to do that which is pleasing in his sight, and serve him and serve one another. Then he goes on, living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. So these things modify the sacrifice. It is living, it is holy, it is acceptable to God. And we think of the times in the Old Testament in particular, where God's people engaged in open idolatry and the worshiping of false gods, and God, in several places, talks about how their sacrifices are unacceptable to him, that they are a stench to him, that he will not accept them. And here, quite the opposite is the case, exactly the opposite is the case, that um, we who have uh, been clothed in Christ, in the righteousness of Christ, now offer sacrifices which are completely and wholly, uh, totally acceptable uh, to God, now, which is your spiritual worship? And the word here for worship uh, reminds us of our liturgy that we do on a Sunday or Saturday, in some cases, when, in other words, when, we're in the, when we are in the church sanctuary. But what a great concept, again, thinking of each and every day our worship is not confined to a church sanctuary, but our thoughts, our words, and our deeds are actually in service to God and are a worship of him, giving him thanks and praise for all that he has done for us. Uh, verse 2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. 
These words are just uh, loaded with imagery. Do not be conformed. Uh, it has the imagery here of a mold. You might think of a, of a clay that is being put into a mold, and it's pliable, and it takes on the shape of the mold. That's, that's what that word conformed means, being shaped and being molded by this world. And boy, we could talk for a long time about how the world itself, um, especially those things which are not pleasing in the sight of God, are constantly at work to try to mold us and shape us and form us in their image. Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, but rather be transformed. And that word transformed, uh, the original language uh, comes to the word that we uh, uh, have in English, metamorphosis, to have a change in form. Uh, to be to be changed in our very form. It's the same word that is used uh, at the transfiguration of Jesus when, G- when the appearance of Jesus was transformed before the disciples' eyes. And you can see that in Mark 9, verses uh, 2 and 3. And uh, Peter, James, and John witness his appearance being transformed. Well, it's the same thing here. Uh, Be completely transformed, changed in form, not conformed, but transformed. How? Through what? By the renewal of your mind. And when we are living the sanctified life, God is at work in us. His Spirit is at work through His Word, for example, to renew our mind, to, to uh, send it in the direction of his will and what he desires versus the exact opposite direction. And, of course, we have to uh, be careful here and acknowledge that we will certainly never reach a complete renewing or a complete uh, regeneration of our mind. In other words, we, uh, at least this side of heaven, I should add, uh, Here on this earth, we will never reach a complete state of holiness and perfection. There was, in fact, early in our nation's uh, history, earlier in our nation's history, there was a so-called holiness or Christian perfection movement that falsely taught that we could be complete, we could reach a state of sinlessness. And, of course, all that results in is a lot of guilt uh, and people doubting their faith, and, and even in some cases perhaps thinking that they must have forsaken the faith if they can't achieve that here. But it is nothing that we achieve. Notice, God is at work in us to do these things. So the renewal of our mind. Now this next part, the testing uh, is, uh, the, the word testing here is used of uh, testing metals, to see if they are genuine or if they are pure. It's sort of a, um, almost a refining fire that tests metals to see if they are pure, if they are genuine or not. And this is the imagery that is used here when it comes to the will of God. Uh, test things in this way to see what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Um, 
maybe just a word here, uh, you know, where do we go to find out what the will of God is? Well, obviously, we go to his word, uh, where he has revealed his will to us. Um, so many times uh, we are tempted to uh, think uh, on our own and think this must be the will of God. Uh, we don't know. And, and, and we must confess that many times in situations in life, we don't know what the will of God is. Um, and we pray uh, that he might, um, that his will, first of all, would be done and that our will might conform with his will. Now, we know certainly when it comes to spiritual things, we know what his will is. Uh, it is uh, not, as Paul says here, not to be conformed to this world, but rather to be transformed. So uh, that, in that case, the will of God is completely known. And in spiritual matters, we know what is his will, that we have uh, trust and faith in Jesus Christ, that we be kept in that faith, and that we be brought to our eternal home in his presence. Let's go on now, time-wise, we better move along here. Verse 3, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Let's stop there for a moment. Paul acknowledges the grace or the undeserved love and merit that God has given to him. Um, you know, Paul is the one who called, referred to himself as chief of sinners. We think of his background in persecuting Christians, followers of Christ. Uh, the grace given to me says, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought uh, to think. In other words, not to be conceited. Uh, not to think that you are the, the end all. And that's especially true, nowhere, nowhere more true than in the church itself. Um, you know, we think of Philippians uh, 2, where you know, Paul talks about, have this mind in yourself, which was in Christ Jesus, who did not count equality with God something to be latched on to or held on to, but instead emptied himself and took on the form of a servant and was obedient even on obedient to death even death on a cross we have no right or or justification for being arrogant ourselves we are but sinners who have been shown the grace of god as paul acknowledges about himself here he says but to think with sober judgment uh, that sober judgment, of course, realizes that all comes from God and from his grace. Each according to the measure of faith he, God has assigned, that God has assigned. Now, faith, of course, is that which simply reaches out and receives the gifts that God provides. And so it's through that faith that we exercise sober judgment. For number, uh, Verse 4, for as in one body we have many members, and the members do not have all the same function. So we have the imagery here of the church of God as a body of Christ, and Paul uses this in other places as well. We, we're not all the same. We have different members. We don't all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ. And so we, we have this unity in Christ and individually members one of another. You know, I'm, I'm uh, certainly, you can hear the echo of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, that 
you know, we, we being many members are all one body because we all, part, we all partake of the one loaf. And so even in the supper, we have that unity that Paul talks about there. Unfortunately, they were having disunity in Corinth that he's addressing in those chapters 10 and 11. But even uh, the supper itself demonstrates, uh, is a clear demonstration of the unity, a God-given unity in Christ that we have one with another. Now, verse 6, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. And, of course, we can't help but think again of 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, where Paul talks about the various gifts, and unfortunately, again, in Corinth, the abuse of those gifts that was taking place. Uh, He says, let us use them back here in verse 6. Let us use these gifts, these differing gifts, according to grace given to us. Uh, If prophecy in proportion to our faith. Now, prophecy was not just predicting the future, but also teaching and applying the word of God to the lives of people. If service, and that's the word diakonia in Greek, if service in our serving, and again, what better example of that do we have than Christ himself, who came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Maybe just a word also of how privileged pastors are uh, to see so many examples of people humbly serving God and one another, uh, not so they can uh, get noticed or gain any notoriety or you know, have their name in the, in the bulletin, but simply uh, because they have been granted and given a servant heart by God and is what they desire uh, to do in, in response and in gratitude. The one who contributes in generosity, and this, of course, would primarily be speaking of of financial, and uh, there are people, uh, certainly, who uh, just give so generously in proportion to the way God has provided for them, in response to the way God has provided for them, uh, materially speaking, financially, and uh, what a blessing that is as well. The one who leads with zeal. And there is, again, some who have that, that gift of, of leadership. And again, God using that, Paul says, to use it with zeal, with gusto. Okay? Um, and then the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. And we think of, again, all the acts of mercy that the body of Christ is engaged with, both on the local level in the congregation, and I mean things like uh, food and clothing and shelter and uh, you know all kinds of, of mercy to people who are in need. Uh, we think of that also uh, across our entire church body, the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, and how, again, uh, we collectively reach out with acts of mercy, especially after disasters occur around the world. Um, and then again, at, as people... Uh, are suffering and in physical need. Um, what a blessing that collectively uh, God can use us as his instruments. And we should say something about that, that that's exactly what is happening. God is using us as his instruments uh, to bring mercy, to bring um, uh, much-needed relief uh, to people, physical help to people, in addition to, of course, the spiritual uh, proclamation of the good news of faith 
uh, I'm sorry, forgiveness through faith in Jesus Christ. All right, well, let's go on to the gospel lesson. And uh, this is quite, quite dramatic, uh, you might say. This takes place in Caesarea Philippi. And uh, I've been privileged uh, twice now to travel to Caesarea Philippi. It is about uh, 25 miles or so north of the Sea of Galilee. So it, we don't know for sure, but this might have been as far north and as far away from Jerusalem that uh, Jesus got during his earthly ministry. Again, we don't know that for sure, but um, it certainly could be. It is a very lush um, green, uh, it, it's where the uh, headway, headwaters for the, the Jordan River uh, are, uh, and, and you can go there today and, and see that. Um, it, is, it was built by Philip, uh, the son of Herod the Great, for, for Caesar. So this is Caesarea Philippi. This is not uh, the Caesarea Maritime, the Caesarea that is on the, on the coast of the Sea of Galilee. This is pretty much smack dab in the middle, east-west-wise, and it is also noted as having a very pagan history, uh, particularly devoted to the Greek god Pan, P-A-N. Uh, one of the most striking things when you go there today is you can see the, the, um, the ruins where people would come and sit and would look at a very tall wall of rock and in this wall, there would be little niches cut. And inside those little niches, there would be false gods. I didn't count them all when I was there. But people could come to Caesarea Philippi and sit there and worship uh, as many or as few of these false gods as they wanted to. Uh, an incredible situation um, just again, the, the, and, and these were, you know, carved pieces of wood, pieces of rock, uh, you know, again, just like the Old Testament, uh, the false gods there, nothing new under the sun. Uh, and so that's a little context here, uh, just in terms of the great pagan uh, worship of false gods that takes place here. So it's in that context that um, Jesus is going to ask the question, who do people say that I am? So let's read this. We're in Matthew 16, uh, verses 13, sorry, verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the dis district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? So he's basically asking the disciples, what is the word on the street concerning who I am? Uh, Jesus used that, that phrase, son of man, uh, many, many times referring to himself, and the disciples certainly understood it as being a self-reference by him. Uh, verse 14, and they, that would of course be the disciples, said, uh, some say John the Baptist Others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Well, let's take a look at this. 
Some say John the Baptist. Now, actually, John the Baptist, of course, we remember, has already been executed. We can turn back to Matthew 14, and you know, surprisingly, who concluded that Jesus was John the Baptist is Herod, the Tetrarch Herod. Uh, Let's go back to Matthew 14, starting at verse 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. So Herod, uh, I don't know how he had the basis to conclude this, but he reasoned to himself that this must have been Jesus come back to life. And then if you continue reading in Matthew 14, you get the account of exactly how John the Baptist lost his life, how he was beheaded. And uh, it's clear that Herod was even troubled uh, throughout that entire account. Uh, anyway, we don't have the time here right now to, to uh, recount all of that. Also, Elijah, very interesting that Elijah is mentioned here. You can go and read Malachi chapter 4, uh, verses 5 and 6, where there is a prophecy that Malachi is going to come before the great day. Let me just read it for you very quickly in Malachi 4, starting at verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So there is a prophecy in the last book of the Old Testament. Elijah has been long gone that he is going to come, is going to be sent before that uh, great day of the Lord. Now, we also know that in Matthew eleven four, Jesus refers to John the Baptist as having been the Elijah, the promised Elijah. If we take a look at Matthew 11, again, real quickly here, uh, verse 14, I think I said verse 4, but verse 14, I'm sorry. Um, here, here is uh, Jesus speaking, and if you are willing, uh, let me go back to verse 13. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, that would be John the Baptist, And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah, who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So Jesus is saying that prophecy has been fulfilled in John the Baptist. And of course we know also of uh, coming up, uh, not long after our text, will be the transfiguration where Moses and Elijah appear up there with Jesus and Peter, James, and John. Anyway, some on the street were saying, uh, that you are, that Jesus is Elijah. And then Jeremiah, one of the prophets, there was um, some understanding among some that uh, at least one, if not more than one of the prophets, would return uh, when the Son of Man comes. Now, verse 15, here comes the big question. He, he, Jesus, said to them, But who do you say that I am? And the the you is plural here. He's not asking, he didn't look right at Peter, uh, at least it doesn't say here. The the you is plural. He's talking to all of the disciples. He didn't ask Peter, you know, Peter, who do you say that I am? But Peter speaks up here, as he does uh, a number of times, many times it seems. 
Uh, he just can't uh, wait to speak on behalf of all the disciples. So Simon Peter replied, verse 16, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Well, he got it right, not because he deduced it himself, we'll find out. But let's just look at the words. The Christ, the Anointed One, the Messiah. There's no other word that he could say here that would more uh, uh, effectively summon up all of the terminology uh, in terms of the Messiah to come and the Savior to come. Uh, the Christ, the one uh, who, for whom they have been waiting, the Son of the living God. Now, earlier in Matthew 14, uh, you'll recall uh, uh, last week, actually, in our gospel lesson, when Peter uh, uh, says, Lord, if it is you out there on the water, Jesus walks on the water. Lord, if it's you, uh, command that I come to you. And Jesus says, come. And Peter steps out of the boat, begins to sink, uh, looking at the wind and the waves. Jesus pulls him up. You know, right after that, he pulls him into the boat. And Matthew records how those in the boat uh, worshipped Jesus, saying, you are the Son of God. Here he's described as the Son of the living God. Jesus answers, verse 17, uh, Blessed are you, Simon Bariona, or Simon, son of John, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. In other words, uh, Peter, this is not something you deduced on your own. Uh, you wouldn't have known it unless my Father in heaven revealed it to you. And, you know, again, a, a perfect passage to point out that we don't decide to follow Jesus. We don't come to Jesus. It is The, the direction is the opposite. Uh, you know how well Luther puts it in his explanation of the third article of the Apostles' Creed? I believe that I cannot, by my own reason or strength, believe in Jesus Christ my Lord or come to him, but the Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel, enlightened me with his gifts, sanctified and kept me in the true faith. So this, again, it is all God's work. In this case, the Father is credited for revealing it to Peter. Uh, verse 18, and I tell you, you are Peter, or Petra, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Well, there's been a lot written on verse 18, of course, and it is the verse that uh, causes quite a division uh, between the Roman Catholic Church and uh, any of the churches that have come about um, uh, during the Reformation and following the Reformation. Uh, just to summarize the difference here, the Roman Catholic Church would insist that uh, the rock upon which Christ is going to build his church is actually Peter, and um, the churches of the Reformation and after would say, no, it is not Peter as a person, but rather it is his confession of faith. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That is the saving confession upon which Christ builds his church. Um, it's interesting to note here, it would have been much easier, wouldn't it, for Jesus to say, you are Peter, and upon you I will build my church, if that's what is intended by these words of Jesus. But that, of course, is not what he says. Now, 
we, we want to be careful here and not go too overboard. Uh, we certainly say it is that confession of faith. That confession of faith was made by Peter. And, of course, the apostles, the teaching of the apostles, is the teaching of Christ. So we don't, uh, we're not meaning here to demean Peter. But it is the, the confession of faith upon which Christ will build his church. And that's a very important statement. Christ builds his church. It is not we who build the church. Uh, it is our, the Lord of the church himself who builds the church. And notice that assurance, not even the gates of hell shall prevail against it. The imagery here being that even if Satan opens up the gates of hell wide open and anything and everything he can throw at the church, it, it will not prevail against the church. Now we have to be careful here. This is not necessarily meaning uh, that this is a promise for every single congregation within the body of Christ, every single church. We do see congregations that unfortunately have to close their doors. Uh, we should also, of course, say this is not a promise made to any individual denomination within the Christian church. This is uh, a promise spoken by Christ about the body of Christ, the entire Christian church here on earth, that it will prevail against even the gates of hell being thrown wide open. Going on, verse 19, I will give you, the disciples here, as um, representatives of the church, the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. We normally talk about the off, uh, this as the office of the keys. The binding, of course, is not forgiving people their sins because either they are unrepentant or they are unbelieving. Uh, loosing of sins is uh, granting the forgiveness of sin because, in fact, they are repentant of their sin and they are believers in Jesus Christ. We speak of that in a narrow sense, first of all, the office of the keys, in the, in the uh, actions of confession and absolution that take place within the church. We also speak of the office of the keys as, in, in a broader sense, as all of that which takes place to bring about a uh, person's salvation, which would include the proclamation of law and gospel, the confession uh, the repentance, the confession of sin, the absolution granted, and so on. So there are just two ways to, uh, just point out two ways, a, a, a more narrow sense and a more broad sense of speaking of this office of the keys. Kind of interesting also when you translate uh, where it says, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Uh, actually, better translation here is will have been bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. So we have to say here, it's not a situation where uh, God waits for uh, us to decide whether sins are forgiven, and only if we forgive them, then he forgives. No, it's, we, are, we are conveying and granting a heavenly reality that it already is the case. And so we have to be careful to point that out as well. Well, um, and then, of course, uh, he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one uh, simply because it was not yet his time. 
Uh, you go through and you see all these times. Mark, uh, the Gospel of Mark is big on this as well, where Jesus tells him, don't tell anybody it's not his time yet. And you see repeatedly how everything is done on Jesus' timetable and no one else's. Well, thank you again for joining us for this study of the Word. I hope it's been helpful for you. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you. Amen.